Hello, I'm Mike Wood. And I'm Justin McClue. And you're listening to the Very Fine Comic Book Podcast. Where we talk about very fine comic books. And this week, we'll be looking at Love Everlasting. We're getting a little romantic. It's Valentine's Day as of the publishing date of this episode. And uh, this is an image series that's been running for the past year from Tom King and Elsa Charretier. And I believe they took a break and they just came back this week was issue number 11. Mm-hmm. But before we get to that, we talk about what we've been reading. What are you reading, Mike? Because I know you've been very excited to show. <laughs> well, Justin, as you know, Uh-oh. we covered Alpha Flight yes. last episode and an episode that wound up uh, running very long. Uh, I don't know if anyone listened to the final 15 minutes of it where we do a dramatic reading of The Return of Guardian. Mm-hmm. And that got me thinking, wait a minute. The real Guardian did come back when I was reading like all the X-Books anew mm. in the early 90s. How did he come back again? So I went and dug up the Alpha Flight issues that I was buying at the time that I was like buying all the X-Books. So you went to your parents' 90s. house and you're like, let me in the attic. And then you're like crawling through all the comics that are stored That's exactly there. how it happened. Um, Alfred Molina was like, you know, give me the comic. And I was like, throw me the idol. Mm-hmm. All that jazz. And uh, so I found... Here's the very dramatic cover, Alpha Flight 89, drawn by Jim Lee. This is, you know. It took 89 issues for the OG Guardian to come back. Yep, James McDonald Hudson, and it's right here on the cover. A boring man. Not a hoax, not an imaginary story. For real, the return of the original Guardian. Doesn't quite happen in the crux of this issue. This is an oversized issue. At the very end, uh, Forge, you remember Forge? He's the mutant whose power is that he can kind of like visualize and create anything technological. Okay. So, and him and Madison Jeffries, who's the Alpha Flight member, who can kind of do the same, but do it like telepathically, mm-hmm. uh, they're in a Roxon facility and they find uh, James McDonald Hudson strung up in some sort of bizarre like bio uh, energy field thing in some chamber and like them sort of uh, just making contact with him like brings him back alive and he's you know crying here I'm alive I'm alive uh, Fabian Nicieza was the writer of this arc and I have very fond memories of his run on this and so many X-Books at mm-hmm. the time in the early 90s you uh, were a 90s X-Men kid right yeah yeah I was okay. never reading any of it before him but I got yeah, big into like you the about Chris Claremont and you said ah, I didn't read those ones I thought you hadn't read X-Men at all but now I'm realizing it's just you read the 90s one so like age of apocalypse and all that that was around like the jumping off one but mm-hmm. i think it was like the couple years before the like quote-unquote x-men number one yeah okay by claremont and lee uh friends were really into the x-book so i got into a lot of that era so that like winding down of new mutants mm. uh around like before rob liefeld started and then as that birthed into x-force yeah and a lot of the other titles at the time. There's just uh, really cool talents working on all of these. Wait, so, so am I supposed to be shocked by this reveal? No. <laughs> okay. Oh. So man. the very next issue. Now, something seemed like familiar to me in that long fake story that yes. the robot impersonating James. So Hudson is he says, a robot again? No. No. Like, this okay. is really him. He yes. is back. Oh no! It's a clone. It's not a clone. Okay. Well, I don't know then. So his method and the story he tells of what happened is. I have been part of the planet's electromagnetic landscape. I have been asleep in a cybernetic dreamland for 10,000 years, he tells uh, Madison Jeffries and Wait, Forge. another story like this? Another story involving flashing back yet again mm. to the moment where he explodes in Alpha Flight 12 trying to dismantle his suit. He sucked through time and space, winds up on the moon of Ganymede so wait, with an alien race named again. the Corellan. It is the exact same story again. The retcon here being that... It's real. The, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> but what Fabian Isiesa does, and I thought this was very clever, is that the robot who was impersonating him in issue 25, who tells that long, issue-long story, 
all of that was true, except that uh, when James Hudson crashed in the Pacific Ocean, he was recovered by like a Roxon mega vessel. No, and then and captured. They, yeah, and, he was yeah, captured. They kept him in storage, hooked up to some like electromagnetic thing all the time. So the robot was impersonating him, but telling the real story. There's no old ideas. No, like no. something that was literally done <laughs> as a joke then becomes real. The thing about Guardian is he died at issue 12. No yeah. one cares about Guardian other than like I was a child when I read these issues of Alpha <laughs> Flight, which is why I feel nostalgic. You showed me a set that was an Amazon exclusive mm-hmm. of Alpha Flight figures. They didn't even have the original Guardian. They had the Heather Hudson. His wife, yeah, right? She takes over. And uh, she's the costume. not called Guardian. She's called Vindicator, which was his original name the in the first name. few issue issues. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, that's an Alpha Flight update. Now we'll be reading the rest of Alpha Flight. You to, know what? Uh, I might be uh, plugging the gaps because I read a lot of the late Alpha Flight and the burn stuff and uh, none of the Mantlo stuff in the middle. But so. it's, it's bad, though. Like No one likes it. I know, but I'm so nostalgic for that era. Like, why not? <laughs> All right. So, hey, it's Valentine's Day. Yeah, so, what have you been reading? Uh, I went and got some Valentine's Day comics. As mm. per usual, DC continues to release specials that you don't know in solicitations that they're specials because it doesn't say. This one's called DC's How to Lose a Guy Gardener in 10 Days. Oh, that's a great pun. Yes, <laughs> it is. You know what? I wouldn't have known off the top of my head that that's a Valentine's Day special. It just no. looks like it could be some Justice League related thing. It doesn't or... even say like Valentine's Day special anywhere. Like just put it at the top or something like yeah. that because these would be un- findable in back issue bins yeah because they're all number ones and they all have different you just have to look in like dc misc Mm -hmm. this one's fun it doesn't have any like real deep cut stories like the other one it's like constantine plastic man wonder woman the flash the flash in too many dates which i feel is a story i've read a hundred times i know i've seen that like having to be in two places at once like mrs doubtfire yeah Yeah. i mean he's a flash so why not Uh, so this one was fun i picked this one up just on like i can't believe this exists a valiant valentine's day special okay i need this because i don't think they've ever published these no i've ever seen a single like valiant uh holiday special and it's called a very valentine's special i don't follow any of these stories so ninjack bloodshot faith uh, Dr. Mirage. I know the characters, but I haven't read that much of their new stuff, but I had to pick it up because I just love the idea that this exists. <laughs> uh, it seems okay. I think uh, most of the uh, normal creative teams worked on it. It wasn't kind of a... Um you know, like these uh, DC ones, which is like to give a chance to new writers mm-hmm. and artists is the sense that I get. From what little I've read of New Valiant, there's always amazing creators working on mm-hmm. it. Uh, Jeff Lemire, I'm Matt surprised Kint. it still exists because yeah. they seem to have come back. I actually picked up out of the bargain bin uh, just a couple of weeks ago all of the Archer and Armstrong reboots mm. uh, for like $2 a trade paperback. They were just at the beguiling in like the front box. Oh, that's at the cool. Front. Yeah. Very fun. Mm-hmm. I've read some of the Ninjak. Eh, not really for me. Very reminiscent of like image kind of story telling have you read divinity no i haven't read that was that a one. great mini series it wound up being a series of mini series that was very akin to like something like a, a tarkovsky solaris huh like about, interesting uh, three astronauts who are not pre-established characters who the russian space agency in like the 50s sent to the edge of the universe and mm. uh, decades later one returns okay and uh has like just omnipotent powers and it's like what, what's he gonna do with them and oh, that's uh, fun. it's only four issues long but tells what feels like a 
fairly complete story like mm. it, it clearly le- like lets you know what's going to happen next it's like what happened to the other two mm. and then the second one returns in the second miniseries and the third one returns in the third miniseries and each one comes back changed in some very very different way i feel valiant comics are a little difficult and this may just be my perception to get them these days and that like the trade paperbacks there was a million of them mm-hmm. and they're every you can get them for really cheap they're not really in stock anywhere it seems like they published like big omnibuses as well and those went away very quickly because like the kind of wave of new valiant they got a lot of press when they came out like 10 years ago. I think they rebooted everything right. Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of not really there anymore. Yeah. I mean, a, a big part of that, I think, is just market forces these days can't possibly keep everything in print. No, you like, can't. There's no shelf space. Print on demand. Yeah. Print on demand. Even though that that's a lower quality. But actually, something I'll be talking about next week, I got on demand. Uh, a company started doing manga. And it looks actually exactly like the previous manga, except it has that print-on-demand smell. I don't know if you ever got like a print-on-demand book. It like smells a very specific way. Yeah, I got this Stooge-themed one that mm. came out around December. It was a collection of uh, like essays and writings about <laughs> the Three Stooges. And it smelled like the Three Stooges, uh, with right? With contributions from Justin DeClue right here. And it yeah. was uh, actually, that was the first, like I think, Amazon on-demand really? thing I'd ever purchased. So uh, the first thing I noticed is, hey, why is there no spine on this? Oh, well. Like, is that a thing? No, that... that's just Will didn't put a spine on oh, it. Okay. Yeah, you can put spines on oh, sure, You just sure. have to make sure that it's because uh, they're usually all perfect bound when you get them uh, print on demand on Amazon. And mm. yeah, I mean, it's a great way, an easy way to do it. Yeah, like so I think that would that... be the next evolution of trade paperback, uh, like sort of inventory. I think the being quality needs to be a little bit higher, yeah. though. It's not quite there yeah, yet. Yeah, like if these companies can get print on demand going that looks identical to how a trade paperback would look on and the shelves today. And affordable. And the thing is good. that like uh, the print on demand books, because of the way they're kind of like the coat on the front cover, like if you hold it too long, it starts to like peel away, like whatever, prote- and it feels oh, wow. weird in your hands, mm-hmm. which is why you'll see a lot of like the Viz three-in-one manga books. Like if you buy them used, a lot of people tape the edges. Mm. So like the, the cover doesn't start to peel oh, on it. I've seen that and yeah. I didn't know why that was on the used copy. Yeah. Well, I have one other Valentine's Day special and this one rules, okay. the Godzilla Valentine's uh, Day special. That's and amazing. What's this? It's also a gay Valentine's Day special. Cool. Love it. Uh, it's about a woman who uh, she loses her job after Godzilla attacks. And man, there's a chunky Godzilla in this as well. And she ends up kind of butting heads with a member of G-Force. And it spans many years as they go back and forth, kind of crisscrossing until they realize, oh, maybe we have something here. It's uh, written by Zoe Tunnel, illustrated by Sebastian Perez and colors by Rebecca Nalty and letters in production by Joanna Natalie. I want to bring this all up because this comic rules. This is a gorgeous book. Gorgeous and I would recommend too. picking it up. Now, are the stories that they're seeding this within pre-existing Godzilla stories in I don't the believe movie so. verse, or are they just no? There's no continue okay. continuity in Godzilla. There's mm. just no. Just forget it. Godzilla's yeah, yeah. a big monster. That's pretty much it. IDW is interesting in that like they started republishing a lot of Godzilla stuff lately. Like mm. almost every week, there's a new Godzilla comic, but they seem to be avoiding any kind of continuity that they're doing like one-offs like Godzilla Rivals which is like oh this issue is about Space Godzilla Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting because it allows them to give creators a chance to okay you're just in charge of it you can do whatever you want with it illustrating drawing coloring and it's out of any kind of continuity in Toho which seemed to be a little bit stricter on this back in the Dark Horse years where they 
could not use any other monster than Godzilla, mm-hmm. which is such a dumb rule, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, they can do, you can do whatever you want with Godzilla now, So, which is why you can get something like the Godzilla Valentine's Day special. Very cool. I hope there's a Godzilla special every uh, holiday season. I, Summer special, uh, Halloween special. Yeah, I need to get more of these. All right, a few quick ones. I think I talked about Vinland Saga at the beginning of the podcast saying, eh, I don't know about this. You did. What a gorgeous hardcover. But Look at I read this. all of it, and it rules. And the thing about Vinland Saga is it's not the comic it starts as like mm-hmm. that's not what it evolves into so i was a little bit bothered at the beginning because it's about a young boy who is like a cool badass with two knives i gotta tell you this is pretty terrific <laughs> yeah and he goes around and he kills people and there he's kind of like an anti-hero and what the comic ends up being about is how the person he was at the beginning is a bad person and he tries to put away violence Hmm. and try to live a non-violent life and try to start a new society and like Vinland Saga is a place they want to go and like start a new city where there will be no violence and stuff and that evolves over a long period of time where it starts with him as a teenager there's a time jump where he's like more of an adult and this is like his teenage years Mm -hmm. Uh, they were published in two in ones hardcovers that were kind of cheap and these are basically this is I think the first big hardcover from Kodansha which is one of the big three publishers oh this like binding and spine is Incredible. leather wow and it's uh another company that was doing this a lot is dark horse because okay. they did berserk mm-hmm. and blade of the immortal in these big har- and helsing mm. out of all comics and they're continuing doing they're doing trigun coming back in print and yeah this comic i love this comic this would be an easy recommendation and if you buy it like this i believe it's 60 dollars for this big one uh uh yeah uh, it's actually 54.99 which is equivalent of what it would cost maybe a little bit more than the smaller sized hardcovers mm-hmm. that you could get you know what that's cheaper than i expected when you held it up i thought this yeah. would be a 100 like book. 150 dollars yeah. uh one last thing i got a lot uh 2000 ad uh we talked about them it's our most listened to episode the one about judge dread and the cursed earth oh yeah i so i bumped into a complete stranger once at an event who recognized my voice from that episode that was wild to me i think it's maybe because uh, people know what judge dread is but they haven't read it so like a podcast is like oh that's interesting like i'd like to know more yeah yeah and then they don't subscribe <laughs> they're like oh archie again <laughs> but i heard some people talking about this on a youtube thing that i watch nemesis the warlock now okay. listen to this pat mills uh who's one of the big mm-hmm. 2000 ad writers and kevin o'neill the recently departed uh wow. mostly famous for doing the art of the league of extraordinary gentlemen mm-hmm. uh this comic rules it's kind of like a high fantasy science fiction oh thing God. yeah look at yeah this. it's actually huh. not what you think of when you think of pat mills's art okay. which is very kind of jagged in league of extraordinary gentlemen mm-hmm. is what he would evolve to this yeah. is probably more in line with uh the slicker 2000 ad stuff but like hyper detailed this has a very like vertigo-y flowiness about him a mm-hmm. bit more like sam keith kind of yeah you know a little bit yeah especially that it's very kind of grand in the way that it's presented and the okay. perspectives are all over so the who place. or what is nemesis the warlock um you know what i'll let people discover that for themselves uh, the okay. series seems to kind of evolve into what it ends up being where like the first uh i, I want to say issue but if people didn't listen to our judge dread one it's 2000 AD was a weekly magazine and each story, I think it's seven pages. Yeah. About seven pages. So you'll start reading and you're like, wait, is this about comic rock? This guy? <laughs> and then it, it evolves into what it actually is. So 2000 AD is published by uh, Titan books and reprints. Okay. 
they were never that nice. I remember seeing like um, that shark one hook jaw like on the shelf mm. and being like, oh, that's cool. But I guess they started doing new reprints and these are like oversized. Yeah, it's bigger. It seems they also recreate the covers in yeah, color. That's great. Which you don't often see in these kind of books. And so really happy that I could pick this up. Uh, and like Alan Moore, nobody drew like Kevin O'Neill. It's not much of a comment on this particular book. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, would recommend. Also, very affordable. Uh, twenty six bucks. That's a great price for this. Yep. Wow, this is oversized, incredibly uh, professionally looking. All right, so that's what we've been reading. Now let's move on to love. Exciting and come aboard. We're expecting you. So what do you know about romance comics? Not that much. I know of the kind of iconic stuff. Mm -hmm. And also I know what I researched for this episode, which exactly. I did the exact same thing that you did. Totally, yeah. So romance comics were a fad that really picked up steam after World War II. And it's weird to think that uh, superhero comics were also seen as a fad that was dying off big time. Mm -hmm. After World War II, people were just, you know, done with superheroes. Well, there were so many superhero yeah. comics and they were so cookie cutter and, you know, they're just kind of spinning their wheels. Mm -hmm. So, you know, romance comics are coming in after World War II and it's a huge boom. Huge. And, uh, the main one that was everyone knows and talks about is Young Romance, which was created by Jack Kirby many times. Yep. Jack, King Kirby, and Joe Simon. Also the creators of Captain America. True. Yeah. Uh, Young Romance uh, was uh, started in 1947, wound up running until the early 70s. Wow. Which is nuts. Uh, and it was such a runaway hit. There wound up being about 150 copycat comics. Ooh, so 150. Much. So we talk about like the over ubiquity of superheroes at that time or now. Yeah. But this was yet another like chasing the gold moment of everyone thinking like, wow, these are huge. And people may be surprised to hear that romance comics did not flourish after um, the seduction of the innocent scandal. In mm -hmm. They were also targeted with horror comics yeah. as a morally repugnant thing. So in 1954, uh, with the implementation of the Comics Code by the Comics Code Authority. Uh -oh. Which is a self-governing body that the publishers decided to do themselves. Mm -hmm. Which, for a, a body that they decided to do themselves, was very strict. Yeah. We should do a Comics Code uh, episode and talk about, like, you couldn't shoot somebody in the same panel for a while there was a no monsters rule like no werewolves no anything like that yeah that's so weird that monster comics were considered like a secret mm. like underground thing that's so weird so i'm just going to read this line from the information superhighway which phrases it better than i probably could um so following the implementation of the comics code in 1954 publishers of romance comics self-censored the content of their publications making the stories bland and innocent with the emphasis on traditional patriarchal concepts. Ooh, indeed. Of women's behavior, gender roles, domesticity, and marriage. When the sexual revolution questioned the values promoted in romance comics, along with the decline in comics in general, romance comics began their slow fade. Uh, DC artist and editor Dick Giordano stated, Girls simply outgrew romance comics. The content was too tame for the more sophisticated, sexually liberated women who were able to see nudity, strong sexual content, and life the way it really was in other media hand-holding and pining after the cute boy in the football team just didn't do it anymore and the comics code wouldn't pass anything that truly resembled real life relationships but you know who still does the hand-holding and pining after the cute boy archie yeah archie he yeah. was the kind of you know a tame there's nothing that changes in archie hence there's nothing dramatic 
Hence, anybody can read it. Put them on the news uh, paper shelves, mm-hmm. news racks. There but you go. When you have uh, upwards of 150 comics all being forced to sort of shift from slightly more adult uh, situations to a now uh, regulated domestic bliss or like teen crush like sort of uh story trope Mm. it's gonna get stale fast so the industry just died but there was also reading about romance comics like an emphasis on the broken heart Mm. and women not having control even at the height of it i mean when you think of romance comics you think of like those iconic pop art images of like the tear streaming down the woman's face yes and roy lichtenstein Mm. uh, who did the uh, drowning girl painting was probably the most famous piece in pop culture that's a reference to romance romance comic trade when you mean reference you mean just a ripoff of romance comics (laughs) and so we come to the comic we're talking about today love everlasting Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, this had an interesting genesis in that uh, Elsa uh, Charretier who's an amazing artist Mm -hmm. uh, I first became aware of her work on uh, a wasp miniseries that she drew oh the unstoppable wasp yeah very critically acclaimed series wow Uh, who wrote that one uh, that was written by Jeremy Whitley, and Elsa Charretier drew the first volume. And her style really struck me as, like, very Darwin Cook-esque. <laughs> you, you said it before D- I did. Yeah, Justin <laughs> was clearly going to say it. And well, it, you know what? It's been said elsewhere, too. So that's I, not I an original observation. Instantly, when yeah. I started reading this, and I looked at the back of this book, and it says in one of the quotes on the first book, Okay. Uh, looks very much like Darwin Cook's art. Really? Who says that? Because uh, I have the singles, not the trades. Let me find it here. Uh, Publishers Weekly starred review wrote, Charretier's sick line cartoony character design reminiscent of Darwin Cook (laughs) perfectly depicts this Mm. genre crossover. You know, normally I don't like to sort of compare like A to B when they're like contemporary Mm -hmm. enough, but uh, Darwin Cook passed away several years ago. And um, I mean, this is like a rare case (laughs) where I look at her, her art and think, this is the heir apparent to that style. Oh yeah, it's ex- absolutely, yeah. and and I mean that with the like highest possible compliment because I, he's one of my favorite creators. She's of all not time. going around going like yeah. Darwin who or anything like that. Like I was watching one of her videos on YouTube, and she pulls out the New Frontier and she starts comparing panels with another comic, mm-hmm. and so it's like she's got that comic right close to her, and maybe that's one that she studied a lot as an artistic style. Now Tom King, mm-hmm. I believe we've talked about before, but Many we've times. never done one. <laughs> It's so funny that I'm like, what Tom King book should we do? And Mike's like, Love Everlasting. I was like, I've never heard of it. Why? What is that? Because <laughs> we could have done, I love his Superman, uh, like little short series that he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really uh, love his Mr. Miracle series. So good. The Visions is very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a little bit colder on his long run stuff. Like he did some Batman which, eh, it's all right. I bought his entire Batman run, and it had its ups and downs. Yeah. Um, Batman, li- just marry Catwoman already. Yeah. Come on. I like that it was not constrained to, like, here's the six-issue formula written for the trade. There was mm. a lot of incredible, like, one-off issues, issues, three-story arcs, eight-story arcs. Uh, so he's been a really dynamic writer of the past. Uh, oh, I love his Strange Adventure series he did mm, about um, Adam, Adam Strange. Strange. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, which a lot of detractors said, this is a character assassination. It's like, no, you, you didn't care about Adam Strange. No one did. <laughs> There's some good <laughs> blogs about Tom Taylor saying stuff like, hey, you know, if it's really great and people love it, it'll mm-hmm. be folded into continuity if it's a black uh, label book. If they don't like it, nah, it's just an Elseworlds title. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Yeah, who cares? Adam Strange. You yeah. keep trying to reboot Adam Strange, who's basically uh, a guy with a ray gun and a jetpack who travels on Zeta beams. Yeah, he's just like a he's been around redundant forever. of a yeah. Buck Rogers or Flash yeah. Gordon type. He's he's fine. Yeah. But like not someone that I would think 
you know, people need to be a massive enough super fan mm. of to no. then, you know, uh, you be detractors take... of one of the best written and, and best comic, drawn miniseries. You of the read past it and while. you go, yeah, Adam Strange would probably be this. Yeah. Like as a character who travels to another place and he's basically colonialism yeah. and lying in war crimes. And we can't mention Tom King without saying that he used to work for the CIA. Yeah. And um, I think that was very short lived. Like he worked mm. as a CIA counterterrorism op. Ugh. Then he uh, wrote a novel about it. Uh, and um, now he's retired to all comics. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think the thing that really put him on the map was um, the Vision miniseries. Yeah, was the, that the first thing. Like he the did Visions. some other DC stuff. He did that uh, Dick Grayson series. I never Tim, read that one. He also did Seeley. Omega. Omega Men. Yeah, which I hear is quite good. Which is a very uh, CIA uh, influenced comic book. He yeah. also did a uh, Watchmen miniseries. Oh, did he? One yeah, of those? Uh, uh, rot- no, it wasn't. It wasn't was one of the before Watchmen. No, okay. not, not that cash grab. Uh, <laughs> like, for shame, Brian Azzarello. For shame. <laughs> no, it's a one that uh, popped up recently, which it was pretty well received as well. Oh, this was the Rorschach uh, miniseries. Yeah. Oh, I didn't, didn't say it I can't say that name. Okay. I, I picture it in my mind. I'm like, Rorschach <laughs> every time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very prolific writer. Very prolific. Uh, he's been just... I handed the keys to pretty much any type of uh, DC property he seems to want to do. And he uh, seems to love comics. Yeah. And he loves comics. Yeah. I saw him talk at Fan Expo when he was like fairly newer to mm. DC. And just, yeah, that passion and infectiousness was in- absolutely incredible. Mm. And now let's talk about this book. Mm-hmm. The premise is, and this is not a spoiler, it happened in the first issue. Yeah. A woman is trapped in a basically repeating scenario where she finds herself in a romance comic it never specifies it's a comic yeah it's like a shifting between realities into sort of tropey romance comic type scenes that you'd see in a late 40s early 50s style like uh patriarchal comic structure and she realizes this Mm -hmm. and uh fights back against it very quickly like by issue number two she's pulling a gun on the mysterious figure who's a cowboy who's keeping her trapped in this world yeah this is an issue I have with the series is that I think it it kind of blows its load very early mm. and that there were a few issues where I'm like, all right, this is just a romance comic until like the last two pages. I don't think it did that for me at all yeah. because um, how I approached it, like reading it was, um, and I saw this comparison early on, so it's not my comparison. Uh, someone compared it to almost a bizarro quantum leap. Yes. Where in quantum leap, Sam Beckett is trying to like make everything okay and then he leaps on to the next one. But she doesn't this one, affect the story though. Yeah. Like she only really becomes aware of it in little, I'm talking about volume one. Yes. Actually, spoiler alert, loved volume, volume two. Volume two takes a two totally total different. Total turn. Yeah. And uh, issue 11 was just released and that one is taking a total, did you read issue uh, yes, 11? Yes, I have. Incredible. To- I, I'm very curious to know where that's going as well. And I should preface by saying, um, Tom King has said he is- 30 issues. Well, he and also he's writing this five issues at a time. Okay. He, this is the first time he's like writing for the trade, which he normally doesn't really mm. think of. So each of these arcs and trade paperbacks is is a five issue story in itself. And uh, so I was a little frustrated at first, especially by like so issue two. I'm like, oh man, the way that one ends. Yeah. So I, I like issue uh, issue three is interesting, but again, it's mostly a romance story. Yeah, so the crux of each issue is that she's stuck in these situations where some sort of old-timey romance comic male is trying to woo her, and the moment where she decides she has fallen in love... Yes, where she usually... They even say, like, when she says, I love you, Mm -hmm. that's when she goes to a different comic. Yeah. And the difference between Quantum Leap is she's not really aware of it 
until the final moments. Yeah, so exactly. That's why it's kind of like a reverse of Quantum Leap. She's not on a mission like Sam Beckett is. She's here involuntarily and she doesn't know what's going on. Wait, was Sam Beckett, did he know why? Didn't he he get like fritzed out and he wanted to get back home? Because each leap he hoped would be the leap home. True, but it was like his lab, his plan, his team back in the... 10 issues in or 11 issues in, we still don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Like, is it a VR simulation? What is it? We don't know yet. Yeah. So uh, talk about the cowboy a little bit. Yeah. Like, what do you see of him in these first few issues here uh you don't see very much usually yeah. only shows up at the end mm-hmm. i mean that's the thing is that there's like a little twist usually right at the end that presents things or it, like an issue three recontextualizes what you just saw which was very cool but the issue is i i personally don't find the romance stuff that compelling in these i think in a way that's a little bit of the point yes like we're supposed to like roll our eyes at a lot of this and think Oh, these old timey tropes. Yeah. Like these are weird. And I Uh, have a controversial thing to say, which is I was thinking about it when I read the beginning of the issue. Mm -hmm. Would I have found this more compelling if it had the style of a romance comic art wise? Like a Roy Lichtenstein. There's a very specific kind of style that when you think of romance comics. Yeah which is like very realistic mm. like in the way that people are shaded and things like that and presented and this is like the opposite of that the like uh Sh- style is very stylized which i did feel a bit of a uh, kind of a distance because they're trying to emulate the romance, like the big splash pages of mm-hmm. like, uh, you get the big title, like one last kiss. And then it says like the author and the writer and stuff like that, but it doesn't look like that. So there was a little bit of cognitive dissonance at the beginning for me, which is like, they want you to buy into this style, but it's already so distant from what I expect from a romance. Con- and this is coming from someone who's like not read that many romance comics, but I have an idea of what it is. Now, I understand why they picked this style. Mm-hmm. It's much more approachable from a modern perspective. That's exactly what I was going to yeah. say. I think if it tried to look like a 1940s, 50s throwback, I think a lot of people would pick it up and put it down. Oh, but could you just like, Tom King did it in Strange Adventure, where there's a oh, very realistic style. Drawn by Mitch Gerads, if yeah, I recall. It's, it's drawn by two people. Oh, yes. Because um, the flashbacks are much cartoonier. Doc Shaner? I don't remember what yeah. the guy's name is. Yeah. Drawn by Evan Doc Shaner. Yeah, so you have like both those styles of like the flashbacks have like a cartoony, poppy style, Mm -hmm. but like the modern day segments are like very realistic. And listen, this is, I'm the quarterbacking, I'm not the artist, like I could never draw this good or this visually imaginatively. Is that like, do you start like even just a splash page is super realistic. Mm -hmm. And then when you turn it, it turns into uh, Shakati's style. Like I'm sure Tom King and Shakati had these conversations of like, do we do it? Do we not? Like maybe everything does seem very deliberate to me. And uh, to me, like I didn't have that issue at all because I already in my head from having come to this, like a fan of and owning everything Darwin Cook has done, like seeing how reminiscent of Cook, her style was my brain already went back in time Mm -hmm. to like a lot of 50s, 60s comics. So yeah, that there was never a dissidence with, uh, for me with that. And, uh, and I should say that like Shakatie, she has a YouTube channel where she does videos and like she knows comics. Like mm-hmm. she can analyze them, storytelling. She like breaks down comics. It's like, why do they do this? Why do we do that? I was watching one about Deadly Class, uh, the new comic, the Rick Remender comic. Oh, I haven't read that one. And yeah. uh, she was talking about like, look how um, busy these panels are, but mm-hmm. why does this work? It doesn't feel overwhelming. And it's like, she's very smart about that stuff. Really a fascinating uh, watch and listen to. Yeah, I watched the Mike Mignola uh, mm-hmm. one by her. About that you simplicity. Sent me. Uh, yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. That was like 
I think the best produced like sort of comic analysis uh, YouTube thing I've ever seen. I think in terms of doing something on a regular basis. So I read this first volume yeah. and I reached the end and I went, boy, is this what it's going to be every time? Like Now, granted, I did think the same. Yes. And then volume two starts. Yeah. And so, now uh, the main character, though, does try and like break that loop she to does. her credit. There's one uh, romance where she decides to just murder the guy herself mm -hmm. rather than like wait for this cowboy to show up and, and, and kill her or kill them at the moment of I love you. And, and he, the guy is absolutely shocked. He's like, well, what are you doing? What's going on? Mm -hmm. And she's just trying to sort of cause some chaos and see if that affects the loop at all. I mean, the last issue you can tell it's like, oh, this is the last issue of a five issue kind of series mm -hmm. where she's talking to a psychiatrist and she's like jumping through all of the lives at the same time yeah in some sort of like weird facility whether metaphysical yeah. or otherwise but she's like doing it where... in every like every facility is a different time period so these comics we didn't even say like they're cowboy comics uh they're and this is another thing is that like they are using the romance tropes mm -hmm. so they're not trying to do none of this takes place in modern day so it'll all be like you know a gothic romance mm -hmm. or uh, what are some other examples? Like a There's teenage like a hospital romance. one, yeah, like things like that. Like World War Two, yeah, settings that you would have seen in comics of the forties, fifties. And so uh, that's interesting. But I feel by the end, I was feeling like, is this it? Like, what else? What what, what other stuff do they have in the tank? Yeah. So at first, I thought like, hmm, how long can this sustain itself? Yeah. Even though I was absolutely loving it and on board with her adventure. And then issue six comes along, which is the start of the second arc. Yeah. And you're like, oh, so it starts like all the other ones yep. where it's like too hip for love. Yeah. Great where, title. That's where it's one. like yeah. a, 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 you know, wild child meets a square. Basically like a Clark Kent who is not Superman. No. <laughs> like he's just a sort of working just glasses meek mild mm. guy very kind yeah uh and in this uh, case elsa decides and again you can tell she's kind of trying to play the system here and see what happens mm -hmm. she decides to marry this guy but not fall in love yeah and see she what doesn't happens. love him she doesn't love him but she wants to see like what will happen will this draw out like the cowboy to like you know kill her and like uh, loop the cycle again um and it follows the entire rest of her life. Yeah. So the five issues is just her life. There's yes. a very funny joke, yeah. which is every chapter stop is just called Too Hip for Love. Yeah. As if it's like a skipping record <laughs> yes, that it like yes. can't get out of it. And uh, it's always 1963. So she, she can't escape She and everyone in her life are aging. Like time is progressing. Yes. Yet it's still 1963. Yeah. And she... Uh, starts to try to fight against it mm -hmm. and she's put in a mental asylum for 10 years Yeah, and she can't get out of it. I thought this was... So you're moving away from the kind of gimmicks of the first... So I felt almost like the first ones, there wasn't enough meat on the bones of the romance because they were working with those kind of tropes. Mm -hmm. But here, it's just so moving of just a woman living her entire life. Yeah, even if you strip the gimmick of it yes. out of it, this is such a phenomenal portrait mm -hmm. of just a sort of like lifelong, loveless, domestic situation. Yes. And like, where do you yeah. find love? Like she has children. They have grandchildren. Yeah. Uh, and like, how do you live your life? Yeah, her husband uh, starts to die of cancer, and, and even get, then, get she dementia? like yeah. tells someone like, I, you know, no, I, I don't love him. Like, she's not sure what's going to happen, and mm. she's eventually elderly and in a, a nursing home. Yeah, and winds up finding true love in that nursing home. And uh oh, what does that yeah. mean? 
things reset. Thing, everything resets. Yeah. Uh, again, and she has lived the equivalent of like uh, I guess seventy years of her life. Yeah. And she's pissed. Now yeah. I will say, I wish there was something learned about the concept here. Yeah. Other than, it seems like her mother is doing it. Mm-hmm. That the cowboy says like your mother. Have you learned your lesson yeah. or something like that? Yeah. This, I don't know what the reveal will be if Tom King decides to do a reveal. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything, whatever she did, these things she's going through is a million times worse <laughs> than whatever crime that she's trying to, like living an entire life. It reminded kids, me of, um, did you see that Deep Space Nine episode of O'Brien in prison? No. Until he dies? It's, uh, it opens in media res with O'Brien having been caught up in like some diplomatic like thing that went wrong on some alien world and he's sentenced to prison and Starfleet goes along with it like Miles you, you got to do this and he lives out the whole rest of his life in prison and it's just but it's only like a minute or something like yeah, that because it's in then, VR like, yeah. I think he dies and they take this thing off and it was just one minute in some yeah, VR thing there's that, a lot of sci-fi yeah. stuff so that that's does, a trope I've seen before yeah but, but like it's always uh, Black creepy. Mirror does that too oh yeah the Christmas episode the Christmas with Don Ham. yeah oh yeah that was horrifying where it's like you're a million years or something like that where only a minute passes yeah um, yeah so like yeah I Tom King says he has 30 issues in him. I like that that was uh, uh, set out from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it, give, it helps me mentally pace out things in terms of like, okay, well, here's, you know, this volume two is something different. Volume three just started with issue 11. It's something different too. And I want to see how these all coalesce. I don't want it to be a science fiction VR idea though. I feel that would be very unsatisfying. I think that's a little played out. Yeah. I'd almost rather there be near no explanation yeah. than for it to be Make VR. them Greek gods or something. Like, yeah. I don't care. Like Or like lightly kind of fantastic, like some cursed or something. Yeah. I think that would be the most interesting thing, especially when like it takes so long to get through this. And I'm like reading issue 11, like how are there five issues in that though? Of like where issue 11 leaves off. Actually, yeah, issue 11 felt very compressed. Yes. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, but well, yeah, I'm wondering how, if that tone will uh, carry on. And actually, this is a rare case of us talking about a series in progress. Yes. We, we, they're usually done when we talk yeah. about them. Um, but, uh, you know, it's Valentine's Day and uh, I wanted to find something that was A comic that literally has almost no love in it. That's the whole point of it. The whole it. point is it's like an anti-love yes. uh, comic in but a way. It, she does achieve love, but if she does, yeah. then she's punished. Actually, I shouldn't say it's an anti-love comic yes. as much as an anti-the uh, outdated tropes that yes. go with it. It kind of looks at what is love mm-hmm. and how do you fall in love with someone? What does it mean in these situations? I mean, she had to be very strong not to fall in love with her husband after everything that he did for her yeah, in yeah. Uh, the second volume. But, you know, I guess he's just boring and she never had that spark there with him. No, no. Uh, should we talk about issue 11 a bit? Yeah, we can talk about? about issue 11. Uh, I, I, these spoilers I feel that we're saying it's like doesn't ruin it like the fact that I go through her entire life like it's all about the little beats mm-hmm. that you get in it that makes it feel very uh, eventful and I gotta say like both of these volumes other than the structure of volume two there weren't that many like big surprises I felt of like whoa or maybe issue two where like oh we're breaking this concept right away and that's why I think I felt a little bit sad in issue three where it like reset again. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, we're back here again, right? To me, though, that was the dramatic payoff yeah. and pathos of the end of the second arc mm-hmm. was that like, or, oh my God, what a yeah. long, long life. And like to finally have this like happy ending with finding like true love at age 80 something and then nope, nope, it's gone. Like, I, I, and, and have that be the impetus yeah. for the I almost the, expected, because like where volume two ends seems to indicate like she will not play this game anymore. Mm-hmm. Like she will not play the love game. So like, 
And that's not what issue 11 does, though, where you see another love issue, but then there's a twist at the end where we're not following her anymore. We're following the world she left. And yeah. how does that go on from there? Yeah. So I wasn't quite sure. And I guess we'll find out. Yeah. Uh, I was, you know, intendedly not quite sure mm-hmm. uh, if that the Old West scenario in issue 11 is her original like home or timeline. Uh, there was a vibe of it that felt like it might be, but I have no idea. Where I will say, yeah. when I looked at the issue, I'm like, the old West again. We've already been here. I was a little sad. But it's another comic trope. Yep, I know. But like, where else is there to go? Because like, I guess maybe like a gothic horror kind of love, which I don't think they did. They did a kind of upstairs downstairs yeah, love in one of the issues. They could do some sort of like Adam Age kind of. Uh, yeah, or maybe they don't want to get in. Even though that like Shakati's uh, art would very much fit that mm-hmm. of the kind of like, oh, now maybe I'm just thinking of Darwin Cook as well. Like more like the retro silver age kind of stuff, like love in the year 3000 or yeah, something like yeah. that. Uh, I just want to say that like, uh, Shakuti really uh, impresses in the second issue as well, especially uh, we should mention the coloring. The second volume? Yeah. The second volume. Matt Hollingsworth. Matt the Hollingsworth is the colors. Clayton Cowles is the letterer, uh, both of whom I have seen on a ton of assorted image books. And just the way that uh, the coloring indicates mood and time passing and does it in like very subtle but also specific ways like this um, one where it's like so gray the entire time Mm -hmm. indicating her kind of emotional state even if things may look normal. Yeah, I thought it was great. Or the way that you know, when she starts to lose her grip on reality, the panels start breaking, which seems to be a thematic uh, thing that plays throughout the book as well because it shows up again at the end. Oh, yeah. Love it. Oh, I love, love that. it. Matt Hollingsworth uh, colored the Hawkeye series by Matt Fraction and David Oh, Aja. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so if you can picture that sort of like a pastel, uh, like sort of pencil crayon box tones. I'm the worst at describing colors. You know but... what it almost feels like is a Douglas Cirque kind of multicolored uh, vibe of it where mm. there's nothing realistic about the colors. Like sometimes people's skin will be colored purple, but it m- makes sense within the kind of emotional reality of the everyday that we're being presented. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's Love Everlasting, uh, a series we will continue to read. I Maybe am... we'll have a follow-up episode when it's done. Perhaps. Probably 10 years from now in the way that Image, uh, you know, because these are creator-owned books. We've talked about Image before. Mm-hmm. They only keep being printed when the creators decide that they'll be printed. Yeah, so I think that's actually sort of very uh, good for the creator because they can take breaks however long they want to mm-hmm. between arcs. As and... they wait for the payment that it takes a year to receive from Image. I think it's like every spring and fall okay. I read. But um, yeah, I'm very excited to see where this goes and next. And check out Charretier's, uh YouTube channel. It's great. We will link to it in the show notes. And I sent a link to Mike because I was like, my God, like there's three camera shooting this and visit her website she has like art books that she's printed herself or Mm -hmm. like breakdowns of all the covers that she does and she has a patreon as well so a lot of stuff to check out So, as per usual, you can send us letters at the very fine comic book podcast at gmail.com, or you can leave us a comment on Instagram. Yes, follow us on Instagram at the very fine comic book podcast and send us a DM there if you like. And also, 
Don't forget to leave us a review. It's been a, it's been so long. Yeah, you can um, rate the show on Spotify or rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, every little bit helps us uh, bump We see up. all of your reviews and mm-hmm. we will read them on the air. I think some other podcasts I listen to, like the Weekly Planet, they do that. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, listeners, they like to hear if they've written a review. Oh, yeah. That's nice. If it's a negative review, I will not read it. <laughs> okay. You're dead to me in that case. <laughs> Uh, do, 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 do. do we have any new letters? We do have letters. Our first letter is from Ryan, and he goes, questions about the comics industry. Hey, Justin and Mike, love the show. Is there a Patreon in the future? Stay tuned. News forthcoming in the next couple episodes. Stay tuned. Mike does a lot of work on this podcast, which is why we would maybe perhaps be starting that. Letter continues. I would definitely pay for special content like interviews. Ooh, I don't know if we do interviews on Patreon, though. Mm. I always feel bad putting that behind paywalls. Yeah, like if, if we ever did some, I'd rather like fold them into the episodes mm-hmm. themselves. Um, it's You know what? That's not something that ever really popped into my head when we started this. Like, I want to get interviews with no, comics pros because they do it so much. They do it so much already. Any person you'd want to look up an interview with, there's endless like yeah. YouTube feeds that have had people on. I, I'd rather just kind of talk about the books and talk to maybe like local or independent creators. But mm. I think any comic pros have been like... So very interviewed. But uh, we do have guests coming on that are mostly our friends that want to talk about comics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have a question that might be on the minds of others who had followed this path. For context, I collected comics as a kid in the 90s, reading all the typical stuff, Spawn, other early image garbage, Venom, etc. (laughs) But didn't think much about them until 2020 when I got bored during COVID and reignited the old yearning. Indie comics are now much more my thing. But after being away for 20 plus years, I've noticed some major changes to the landscape. To list a few, confusing and endless variant covers. I agree. I think I said this on the podcast, right? Where it's like, it's confusing and you don't know what's new and what's not because there's variant covers up the wazoo. I think my own personal like policy or desire for variant covers is that they like accompany the issue itself it's not like a reprint with a new mm. cover because that's the confusing but thing but there's like where, five of them though yeah. like there's too many well DC I had a great model for them uh, or rule let's say when the rebirth era started where it was like every single book has two covers only there's the main cover that it has rebirth brand at the top and there's like a variant cover which has like sort of no branding it's just a picture and um so you can very easily tell which one is the main cover, which one is the variant. Oh, but I didn't even know that. Yeah. Like, it, that's not clear to me. Again, it's not very clear, but it made it much less uh, confusing in terms of like, wow, what's on the shelves? Uh, the letter continues, constant rebooting to number one. Oh, yeah, I hate that. I, we hate that. I hate that so much. Marvel, ever since they took over the Alien and Predator lines from Dark Horse... There's no subtitles. Remember how when Dark Horse would publish Alien and Predator comics, it'd be like Predator, Cold War, yeah, Alien, so you Hive. Know. These are six issue story arcs that are just Alien one through six, oh, and then it God. goes back to Alien one through six. Wait, are you reading new Alien, alien comics? I am, and they're actually quite good. <laughs> but I know you're an Alien head. They are. They will be a yeah. nightmare to collect in back issue. What? There is nothing distinguishing uh, what story is which. If you you can see like right now, there's like uh, I think they're on, like the fourth mini series. So there's like a fourth, Alien number one, nothing distinguishing unless you look at the creator box. Do companies just don't care about people buying them physically? Like they think, ah, oh, it's going to be digital. That's it. It'll probably be on our service and it'll be easy to find in that way. Maybe I guess. that's it. Or maybe they just don't care about the back like, market because they don't make money off the back I was market. following the Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong mm-hmm. and I was so excited and I missed an issue and I could not find it. And I was like, well, I'm not going to buy the other ones then because like I have a hole right here. Oh, geez. So it's like, you guys are bad at this. But like the comic market in 2024 has shrunken to nothing. Yeah, the single issue market is 
perpetually on like struggling to survive, mm. let's say. And I, I think it's kind of like how they now say the opening weekend of a, a film is kind of just like the trailer for the home media and streaming release. Like that's where the like longevity of money Can is. Can a company switch to a manga model mm. where every month you publish a phone book of comics and if you want one of them, you got to buy them all. <laughs> That would be nice. Like, just save them up for the year. Say, like, get a creator to work, make like the equivalent of twelve issues worth. No, no, no. Oh, this is the manga model. So, like, there's one issue oh, in the like com- Shonen Jump. Like Shonen it's like, Jump. Here's yeah, yeah. all the Marvels in yeah. one phone book size yeah. thing. Yeah, uh, that would be very generous of them, and it'll never happen. It'll never happen. I no. think it. Well, how much would you charge for something? Because if you had, like, I don't know how many stories are in Shonen Jump. Probably ten ish. And each of them are 21 pages. Yeah. And they're very cheap, too. I think that's like $4 US for a Shonen Jump uh, comic, which is like... Yeah, what uh, would the price point be? Maybe like 40 bucks or something? Yeah, it would probably have to be 40 bucks or something like that. And then, I mean, you'd still have to have the singles. It'd be complicated. I would probably buy that, though. I'd be curious in that. Yeah. Because it clearly works in Japan. Yeah. But Japan also has like the manga model that's like one, two, three, four, five. It's like very easy to follow. Yeah. Well, the US wants to... How does it make sense? Like, it only makes sense on a single issue basis because if I pick up a paperback and I'm like, I don't know what this is, mm-hmm. I just put it back down. Yeah. I will say, like, on the subject of single issues, I've read multiple things about how the variant cover market is what's keeping single issues and a lot of single issue heavy comic shops afloat. Now, by tricking people, but no one is buying variant that. covers. It's because a lot of people who are buying single issues are kind of buying them for the art and cover mm. because they'll often have, like, maybe the interior artist doing the main cover and then. You know, they'll get maybe Arthur Adams to do like a set of variants for like a six issue arc Mm -hmm. and they look amazing or something like that. Or Alex Ross. uh, And people are like putting those to their pullets. Like, just give me the next like six Alex Rosses of these. So I don't know if it works and keeps comic shops alive, which are an entirely thoroughly independent business. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm all for it. It just makes it confusing as a customer. Yeah. This uh, letter continues with all this hype geared towards driving the collector aftermarket. I wonder if you see any parallels to the hype cycles of the 90s that led to a boom and bust that apparently closed so many local comic shops. Death of Superman and gimmicky foil covers are a few examples of this. I would say that like the variant stuff, it's not a sign of the end times because it's been the end times for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, like, uh, and like Marvel and DC are just holding on to their like fan base that have been around for the last 20 years and they're the ones that are doing all Because like all the events with Marvel and DC... We've said this before. We will say it again. It sucks. I hate it. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to have to read 40 comics every month to follow a story. No, get that out of here. All the variants. I don't know what comic is which. Yeah, it's uh, it can be really frustrating and exhausting. I mean, they're they're trying things all the time to try and get people back into the shops. I don't think the events really do it. I think the events no. turn people away. I think that the events do. But yeah. why don't they stop them? Like, I don't don't understand. I know Marvel have wound it down. Like, one of the main editors there said that they will never do, like, a Civil War type thing again. But DC's doing it every two months. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what is it? It There was, like, Young Justice, Beast War, or something like that, that just happened. And there's another one that's starting soon. But they're like, people don't know what it is. And it's like, it's not special. It's just confusing. Like, ah, I don't like it. Yeah. I'd read more DC comics if it wasn't for all the events. Uh, The letter writer also mentions he doesn't like the insanity around 
uh, CGC grading. People go nuts about 9.6, 9.4. I don't see any of that. Uh, yeah. Like, I don't follow that. So. I don't follow it, but I don't like it either. And I, it's just not on my radar. Like, no. I don't have friends who do that. I don't really. Uh, I was listening right. to Elliot Kalen on the Flophouse recently. Okay. And he said one of his recent uh, obsessions is buying the most beat up issues of comics <laughs> that he loves. And he says he regrets so much not buying a Stanley Steve Ditko Spider-Man number two that it looked like someone had taken a bite out of. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I, I wanted it so bad. Oh. I, you know, I love that kind of collecting mentality. I That's great. don't. I do not collect for monetary value. Mm. Like I collect, and I may be like, "Wow, this is rare, and it's worth a lot of money." I'll put it on the shelf where all my other stuff. Nor goes. I. I have never like Justin asked me this before we uh, started the podcast. I've never flipped a thing. I've never specifically like bought a comic with the intention of like I'm gonna you know sell this for a higher price down the road. And the story that I'll I'll say yeah. uh, every six months of me as a good man is yeah. that Mike had a, a a stack of comics. Like I'm getting rid of these. You can have some if you want. And I picked one off. What was it again? Millennium. It was, Millennium. <laughs> Horrible I, DC event. And I read it. And I'm like terrible. Yeah. And I looked online, and it was like. A hundred and fifty dollars or yeah. something like that. Did you? You did sell it, right? And yeah, it was. Uh, it went for like fifty or seventy-five. Oh, okay, but, but I was uh, like, Mike, take this back. Yes, because <laughs> it's just gonna sit on my shelf. I'm not gonna get rid of it. You know what? I'm gonna one up you on that. Oh wait, yeah. I have repeatedly yes told that story of you doing that. Oh really? As an example of how good a man you are. <laughs> Perfect. Well, yeah. thanks, Mike. Uh, you know, while Mike doesn't know, I was like, I'm trying to sell this. So I can't get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a monkey's paw that's cursed. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Next week, we are doing the big G himself. Godzilla. Jesus? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, wait, no. Oh, that's uh, Jay. Godzilla. That's Jay. Yeah, that's Jay. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, where uh, did I got my Doug Ment comics out. It's mech, right? M-O-E. Doug Mecca Godzilla? <laughs> no, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Doug Mench? Doug Mench. There you go. I thought it was a hard... It could be Monk. Yeah. Monk? Monk. I don't know. <laughs> uh, comics out. We're reading those, right, Mike? Uh, no. That We're... was a long... <laughs> I paved a I... long road to <laughs> But get if to you ever show. want to do an episode on the Marvel Godzilla, I do have that essential edition. <laughs> no, we will uh... be doing the Dark Horse comics because uh, during like a Godzilla film festival last summer, an important cinema club fan came up to me and he just handed me the entire run of the Dark Horse God. Well, Godzilla's, except, and he left a little note, not the Charles Barkley one and the <laughs> manga adaptation. Mm -hmm. I'm sure if he did have them, he would have given them to me because these comics that he gave me, they're all signed. What? And I don't even know who they're signed by because oh. I can't read the signature. Okay. But like, it's shocking how many signatures there are on these comics. Amazing. So that's what we'll be doing next week. It's a run of, it's about, 18 issues i think because yeah. there's like the color special and then there's like a one shot as well mm -hmm. so yeah we'll be going through we're discussing all of them yeah the main ongoing series was called godzilla king of the monsters and mm -hmm. it ran 16 issues in yep. the early 90s and yeah there's some other ones and they actually continue like the specials like the color special i think went into the main series yeah there was like a couple of i mean it really should be collected in order at some point like someone should do an omnibus because there was a couple of dark horse comics appearances so supposedly yeah uh, we'll probably mention this on the main episode too that idw is the one who would have to do that okay. because they own the godzilla rights now hmm. because uh there's a recent publication of like aliens and uh star wars is being republished but that's because 
Disney owns all those and they own Marvel. So yeah, it's going yeah. through Marvel. So okay. otherwise, it's really up on IDW who own the rights now. And they probably have to make a deal with the creators. I don't know how Dark Horse's system was set up. But that's what we're doing next week. Godzilla, like you've never seen him before. Because it seems that legally he could not fight any other monsters. <laughs> <laughs> so they're going to have to create their own ones. Yeah. Uh, written by a bunch of creators, including the filmmaker Alex, Alex Cox, Cox. who does a run really the surprised comics. me. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. Until then. I'm Mike Wood. I'm Justin Glue. Keep reading comics. I'm running with my baby, I'm running with my baby toward the finish line of love. Yes, I'm running with my baby, I'm running with my baby toward the finish line of love. I wasn't sure we'd make it when the race began. And I saw that pretty girl pacing off for a long time, man. But I caught a second wind, and we left him in the dust. Now there ain't nobody out here but the two of us saying I'm running with my baby, I'm running with my baby Toward the finish line of love, yeah hey, I'm running with my baby, I'm running with my baby Toward the finish line, the finish line of love The finish line of love, the finish line of love